I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. Now, I just had the opportunity to talk with Jia Li about her new book, Shanghai Homes, Palimpsests of Private Life. This came out with the Columbia University Press in 2015. And not only is this the first time that I've ever had a chance to interview someone who turned an undergraduate thesis, if you can believe it, into um, what is an amazing book, but also um, this is a book that I really couldn't put down. So it's a book that takes us into Shanghai alleyway homes of the 20th century by focusing on alleyway homes and their um, kind of uh, resulting neighborhoods that uh, Jia was part of growing up or that her family or people who she, her family knew or that she knew were part of over the course of this history. And it uses an exploration of these homes in a very cinematic kind of a way and in a very, very moving and evocative way to take us into different ways that these homes and these houses were spaces for the production of private lives, were material environments, um, were sensory environments, were environments for the production of memory and narrative and gossip. Um, It's just a really, really uh, wonderfully wrought and wonderfully written book. It's also a book that's full of amazing stories. And you're going to hear some of um, my excitement about this. I'm I'm, I'm sorry I can't really contain that over the uh, course of the next hour. Hour. Um, but also, I mean, I just really encourage you to get a copy of the book and read some of these stories yourself because they're, you know, we can't possibly do justice to them in the course of a conversation. But there's, you know, stories of we've got evil step ma- stepmothers, we've got people buying, um, you know, stillborn babies to eat them as medicine. That doesn't come up in the conversation, um, but that happens in chapter two, so look for that. You've got stories of some amazing women who struggled through some really, really difficult, um, very challenging personal circumstances, and some stories of some really fascinating, really funny, um, just really alive human beings in this book. So it's a book for you if you're interested in Shanghai, if you're interested in homes, in family history, in modern Chinese history, in urban history. Um, It's a book for you if you're interested in the idea of private life, but also if you just really like a good story. So it was really a pleasure, as I hope um, completely obvious, to read the book. And it was also really a pleasure to talk with Jia about it. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Jia Li about her new book, Shanghai Homes. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jia, and thank you for both making time to talk with me today and for uh, writing what was a really, really beautiful and really, really thoughtful book to read. So welcome and thanks so much. Thank you so much, Carla, for having me. Um, Can I actually just take this occasion to say thank you for... um, putting this program together. I have been a fan for three years and uh, this um, this podcast actually made my uh, very mundane daily chores of doing laundry and cooking into really sort of intellectual occasions. And I learned so much from the program. So I want to thank you. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> well, and also, so thank you because without um, people writing amazing books like this, this program wouldn't exist. So, Jill, can you start us off, as is kind of traditional for the channel, um, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you decide to come to work on modern China as your kind of academic field of specialty? 
Um, so I, I was, um, I came to the United States from China when I was uh, 11 years old. And uh, I think throughout high school, actually, um, I was the, um, uh, my teachers would always ask me to talk about China. And, uh, um, I, and that made me ask my parents and grandparents many questions. Uh, initially, when I went to college, I thought I was going to major in creative writing and English. Um, and then I tried also anthropology and I thought about film studies. I tried out all these different um, uh, concentrations and uh, majors, uh, but then decided on East Asian studies because uh, it's very interdisciplinary. I, I feel like I still have a certain um, obsession with China because uh, I, I wanted to find out more about the experiences of uh, my families, their friends, um, especially being kind of a 1.5 generation um, um, an immigrant. And uh, I, I feel like there are many memories that have been left behind and I want to understand them more. So uh, I was very drawn to courses in um, modern Chinese studies uh, in various disciplines. Uh, and I think I pretty much uh, stuck with it. Uh, but uh, I, I couldn't um, decide on a particular discipline initially. But um, eventually, when I came to, to graduate school, I wanted to uh, do uh, literature, uh, film and cultural studies. Um, so um, I um, this is sort of the, the modern China aspect of it. But, yeah. That actually, that's awesome to hear. And it makes a lot of sense to hear that you're interested in creative writing, anthro, and film studies, because you can really see in the book that we're talking about um, the kind of really wonderful transdisciplinarity of the work that touches on all of these um, fields that you've mentioned and these kinds of practices. So, hey. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the book explores the history and culture of Shanghai alleyway homes by focusing on two physical spaces. Both of them were built in the early 20th century by Japanese and British companies, and both were located in the industrial Yangshupu district in the eastern part of what was the international settlement in Shanghai. Um, And there's lots of stuff going on um, within that context that we'll get to over the course of the hour. But first, can you uh, kind of say a little bit about what brought you to this particular topic? How did you come to work on Shanghai alleyway homes? Um, so uh, this project is actually, uh, the, the book w- is originally based on my undergraduate thesis. Uh, and uh, that actually, blows my mind. I just need uh, to get that out there. This is the first time in New Books in East Asian Studies history that that has been the case. And I just am still getting my head around that. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. Um, I actually did not think I was going to write a book at that time. It was really um, because ever since I, I lived in these alleyway homes and the two um, the, the two sort of alleyways are actually the, the uh, housing compounds where my maternal grandparents and paternal grandparents each lived in for um, over half a century. So I knew them very well from my childhood memory. And I I had been also writing stories of fiction and nonfiction um, about these places um, throughout high school and college. So when I was trying to choose a topic for um, my undergraduate thesis, I thought uh, perhaps I can take that occasion to really consolidate what I have done over the years um, and also um, uh, as a way to record the oral histories um, of uh, my grandparents and all their neighbors. And they would actually take me to visit other neighbors. So 
um, I had quite a number of interviewees at the time. And uh, this was also a point uh, when I, I became very interested in film and wanted to um, actually do documentary filmmaking. Uh, my, my mentors at the, um, um, at the time, um, um, Professor Leo Lee and uh, Eileen Chow, they actually both encouraged me to take a camera along and then perhaps make a documentary of my summer research. And uh, so I started um, uh, conducting extensive interviews um, um, actually in the in the summer of my sophomore year already and then um, more extensively in my um, in in the summer after my junior year um, in preparation for the senior thesis and so um, and I found that many of the stories that my interviewees told were oftentimes not actually um, not quite the same as what I learned in um, available scholarship or textbooks so um, I, I was very happy to finish the thesis at the time, um, but then um, uh, when I was enrolled in PhD program several years later, and then uh, one summer I returned to to Shanghai, and uh, uh, my grandparents told me that actually the, uh, the the alleyway that they lived in was being demolished, and so we actually went to look at the demolition site, and all of a sudden I realized at at the moment that this um, demolition worker was wielding almost like a sledgehammer and um, kind of knocking down the balcony where um, where we used to like that sort of evoke so many memories I, I realized that actually perhaps I could uh, turn this thesis uh, the the stories that I have collected into a book project because um, um, I think uh, there there are actually many um, photography books and uh, um, uh, architectural historians have also written about this particular form of architecture in Shanghai that is disappearing, but uh, very few people have uh, really concentrated on one neighborhood and written down the stories of one neighborhood. So I started wondering at the moment of the sort of the demise of these um, these alleyways that perhaps there's some value in the um, in the oral histories that I have collected. And that's when I decided that uh, I wanted to turn this into a book. So what was that process like? Can you talk about um, any of the kind of major transformations or major changes or, or other aspects of the process of, tr- of turning this into a book from an undergraduate thesis? So as an undergraduate, I was utterly undisciplined. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I switched between different majors uh, from, uh, and I, there were also elements of creative writing in the original thesis. I was not very uh, rigorous about my methodology. I, I didn't really think very much about um, how I was um, conducting my research. And I also did not compare notes between my um, interviews and uh, sort of more historical sources. So um, I went back to the interviews and uh, uh, really read up on the, uh, all the relevant scholarship uh, in architecture, in um, history, uh, in anthropology to look at the um, the issues that scholars are more concerned about. I, I guess the main change is really to make this uh, stand up as a scholarly book rather than a collection of reminiscences that I happened to collect when I was um, in China and also really to cross-examine my source because um, 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 in many ways I, I realized that afterwards that uh, um, some of the stories that they told, for example, about when the Cultural Revolution began in Shanghai, when they began to notice uh, my 
my um, my interviewees sometimes misremembered history, so it was important to go back and um, and make sure that um, and but even the misremembering is interesting. Sometimes I, I wanted to really bring that out as well. Uh, so that's one major change, and another is really to engage with the existing scholarship and to to think about what uh, what issues. Um, um, might be of interest to scholars in other fields as well. And uh, there are these kind of moments of really, um, speaking of this misremembering, some yeah. of the stories that you recount in here, which are kind of told in the voices of the people who you're talking to, there are some really wonderful moments where, you know, you can kind of see as a reader this process of one of your um, interviewees saying something like, you know, the, there's this moment, oh, yeah, if the Japanese caught you playing mahjong, they'd make you, like, eat the tiles, right? And then you, yeah. have, you have, like, this, in, you know, in parentheses, somebody else saying, that actually isn't true. You know, they're coming back, and there's this kind of wonderful, I think, play with that, the kind of um, memory and conversation that, that actually comes out of some of these um, interviews that you record for us. That's really, really wonderful. Actually, sometimes I, I feel like when my grandmother says things like, well, um, actually, the, um, the counter-revolutionaries really suffered. They were just like the communists in the, pre, um, the pre-revolutionary days. I, I think that's also a very revealing. Of course, the, uh, the counter-revolutionaries or rightists are not uh, like uh, communists in, the, uh, in terms of their ideology. But when uh, she makes that comparison, it tells us a little bit about her worldview, her view of human experiences. And how uh, to to her the sort of the pariahs of society are those um, who had um, been oppressed because of uh, political circumstances. Um, so uh, I, I find that these moments of misremembering actually quite productive and interesting. Uh, Absolutely, and sort of in the way that you're recording um, traces of multiplicity in the context of these. Um, remembrances, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you have multiple voices, like chiming in with different perspectives in the course of the same interview, it, it really, I think, gives quite wonderful textual and documentary shape to the importance of this kind of multiplicity of memory and the productive um, capabilities of misremembrance. I, I think that's actually why I wanted to focus on a neighborhood rather than just my own family, and also even to, to look at two um, two sides of my family because my uh, paternal grandfather was uh, labeled a rightist. He's more of an in- intellectual, and uh, he went to St. John's uh, College in um, in Shanghai, and then um, um, and, uh, but. You know, because of his intellectual background, he he felt very much persecuted all of his life. But my grandmother, um, um, my grandparents on my mother's side were workers, so they really feel like they had been saved by the communists. And the juxtaposition of the perspectives of these two sets of grandparents, um, I think, also gives um, a more sort of nuanced picture of how people experienced history. And I I try to do that also, particularly in the chapter um, where. I talk about the Cultural Revolution in the in the alleyway where um, many people's homes were uh, ransacked by Red Guards, uh, but I also have the perspective of someone who um, uh, was in charge of a home search and you know his perspective on things, and also the audience of uh, the children at the time who found all of this very entertaining. So um, I think the um, um, I'm hoping that this kind of juxtaposition can be uh, illuminating for um, understanding 
understanding how people experienced history in a given community rather than just um, um, uh, sort of one class or focusing on one class or one individual or one family. Right. Now, already in what you're describing, you're kind of touching on at least two of the really important methodological um, contributions that the book is making and that the book mentions kind of early on in these early chapters. So in thinking in terms of juxtaposition of stories and juxtaposition of images, this evokes the very cinematic aspect of, and I I say that in the best possible way, right? Some very cinematic aspect of um, a lot of the book. And you talk early on about the importance of video work for the project, right? And you mentioned kind of taking a camera. Um, I mean, this is actually, this resonates in different levels, and I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of talk about that in a moment, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about treating research material as footage. Um, yeah. And the importance of kind of cross-examining interview subjects. Can you talk a little bit about that, about sort of video and thinking in terms of video as it shaped how you were um, both producing the book and also kind of thinking about the potential um, contribution of the book? Um, I went into uh, my research actually thinking I was going to make a film. I ended up making a very small film about my um, uh, my paternal grandparents only. But um, the the way I um, I collected about uh, sixty hours of um, interviews and and in putting it together, I was thinking about it uh, in terms of what a documentary filmmaker would do uh, in presenting this information. Partly also because I wanted to make it very accessible and um, uh, very readable. Um, and um, and another kind of, because one of the inspirations for the book was actually a, a film uh, called City of Sadness by uh, Hou Xiaoxian, where there are a lot of long takes and uh, long shots um, taken from, uh, of, a, of a family's uh, everyday life. And, uh, um, but uh, sort of a lot of emotional residue is um, accumulated in the process because we keep on seeing the same scenes again, but then their birth, their death, their, there's war and there's peace. Um, a lot of history actually happens in the background. So um, I thought about um, when I was uh, filming people, not only collecting their oral histories, but also the, the, the mise-en-scene of their, their homes. So the, the, the decors, the settings, what do the different artifacts um, um, of their homes actually say about them? And then when I asked to see their photo albums, uh, that's usually also an occasion for them to remember the past and talk about and um, it's, it's really a moment when they can speak about their memories um, so I I used these um, um, I used film in, as as a as a uh, an interview method for the most part but also as a structuring device for the for the project as a whole um, now, in your invocation of the importance of the accumulation of emotional residue, mm-hmm. this actually speaks to something you mentioned also early in the book. You call your approach to research here excavating where I stand, right? So and this yes. idea of excavation um, is really interesting. It also evokes one of the terms that's in the title that's really crucial, which is the idea of a palimpsest. 
Right. Yeah, that is my favorite word. I, I used to joke that if I were uh, on my gravestone, I would want, the, if I had one word, it would be palimpsest. And, uh, um, but I, I think that uh, because the word, um, I think it uh, sort of brings together a number of different disciplines. Uh, a palimpsest is a text, right? It is a text that has been, uh, it's a, a manuscript that has been written on and partially erased and then written on again. So it has multiple layers. So, uh, but there's a sort of a material texture to that text. So I can use uh, methods from literary studies for a palimpsestic text, uh, but at the same time, uh, it evokes history, uh, the notion of history because it's, um, there are multiple dimensions of time. And, uh, um, and then it also sort of the, the materiality of it and the idea that urban space can be like a palimpsest um, also allows me to um, uh, really treat these homes as palimpsests. Um, I guess one of the central, this really occurred to me when I interviewed my, um, my paternal grandfather, um, over the summer. And, uh, at that time I was about to graduate from college and I actually didn't know he went to college, but he said, Oh, I have a, a diploma. And then so he, um, he, he sort of, um, he, he actually has a whole string of keys that he carries with him all the time that jangles when he walks. Uh, and his house is actually quite small, but he locks up everything. He's quite paranoid. And uh, so I always thought there might be a lot of secrets. And one of those secrets actually turned out to be his college diploma. And he uh, he took it out. And it's uh, it's uh, St. John's College, uh, quite a prestigious college in um, in Republican era Shanghai. But um, uh, what was very surprising to me is that he had made cr- red crosses all over the diploma. Uh, so he vandalized his own diploma. Uh, and I when I asked him why, he said uh, during the culture revolution, he was afraid that his home might be searched. Uh, so, um, And this uh, diploma written in English might be taken as evidence of his uh, collaboration with imperialists. So he decided to denounce himself preemptively, but he didn't want to throw away or destroy the diploma. So he just uh, made crosses all over it. And then when I looked at that uh, that document. Um, it's very yellowed and brittle. And then he was kind of holding it and laughing and crying <laughs> uncontrollably. And uh, I thought uh, that actually, um, you know, this, this piece of document, it's from 1943, but it also has markings from 1966. And as he holds it and sort of rereads that document, uh, he's attributing meanings from 2000 uh, as well. So um, uh, one can also treat a home as a similar kind of artifact uh, that bears traces of their owners over time. And um, by excavating those traces and by sort of really digging into um, um, these traces, I'm trying to um, find out the meaning of history um, for um, people like my grandfather, but um, also more generally. So um, the, also the idea of excavate where I stand is that um, I, I'm, I'm trying to make an argument that one's own family uh, or people that you know very well, um, that usually in scholar, uh, as a scholar, one should not use very personal sources. And um, I wasn't as aware of that as an undergraduate, uh, but uh, in turning this um, into a book, I uh, kept on thinking, what what does it mean to have this kind of subjectivity in the book? Um, and um, um, 
And I, I feel that because there are certain kinds of information that are very private and very intimate that you can only get if you are a member, an in-group, um, um, if you're part of the, uh, if you know the uh, people very, very well, because if you're coming from outside and doing interviews, they, they may not be able to tell you um, um, and, uh, what they really think, but also like um, because I know my interviewees so well, um, I have talked, spoken to them at multiple occasions and um, um, also like meals and uh, other silences and their paranoia are manifested over time. So um, I wonder if one's um, own family could not also be a source of valid scholarly inter- inquiry. And this is what I'm trying to do in the book. And um, I'm actually quite curious about how it will be received um, by um, by historians and anthropologists. Um, I, mean, I, I can't imagine that there is not going to be um, an overwhelmingly positive reception for this, in part because the book doesn't just kind of touch on the, you know, the fact that you're related to some of these, you know, people. This mm. is about your your life and your family yeah. as well. It embraces that, right? It, it sort of proceeds from that and owns that and makes that part of the story um, and in a really wonderful way. And I think one of the ways um, that this really works is that it lets you get at one of the other really important and uh, touchstones and kind of threads that link the different chapters of the books. And this is the idea of a private life. So throughout, you know, we'll talk about this over the course of the chapters, but throughout the book is defining private life in a particular way. It's advocating for the importance of thinking about private life in the context you're talking about, and it's investigating several dimensions of private life. And you call them private territories, private artifacts, and private narratives of history. Mm-hmm. So let's actually get to some of those territories, right? And let's yes. get to uh, foothold. Now, the first yeah. chapter introduces us to the two homes that are under investigation in the book, and it introduces them in terms of housing, like as they functioned as housing for yeah. families and for individuals in an increasingly crowded city. And you're looking at a, a sort of um, the, the idea of foothold. You're looking at these homes in terms of square square meters, right? In terms of physical space. Um, in addition to other things. So um, the, but this chapter takes us through the stages of these homes as foothold from foundations um, in the early 20th century all the way through the 1970s and 1980s. So to get us started, um, just to kind of give us a glimpse for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, can you just kind of lay the foundation, so to speak, and describe um, what we need to know early on about these two homes to be able to follow kind of what comes next? Uh, so both of these um, um, alleyways were built in the early 20th century. So one was built in 1927 by a British real estate company and the other uh, by uh, in 1915 by uh, actually a Japanese cotton mill. They actually commissioned sort of shatakulake um, um, housing compounds for their employees, uh, ja- particularly Japanese employees. Uh, and with, um, um, with the British um, uh, um, housing compounds, Compound the, the 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 name of this lane uh, or alleyway is called Yobangli um, uh, or Alliance. I translated it as Alliance Lane. Um, uh, I was very lucky to find the um, um, 
a woman um, whom I called Grandma Apricot. Oh, I love uh, her. She, <laughs> she was. She actually moved there with her family uh, when she was a little girl, and she had lived there until its demolition in 2006. So she actually, uh, w- uh, I was able to find out a lot about this housing compound from her between the years of like 1933 and 2006, because she she married someone who was uh, also in in this alleyway. So she gave me an account. Of what life used to be like, and how um, uh, her um, her grandfather and father, like how a multi generational household um, used to live in one house, and how after 1949, because of the um, because uh, many of the bourgeois families who used to live there, um, as you know, they were either small capitalists or they were working as um, uh, managers for uh, particularly the British American Tobacco factory that was next door. Um, um, many of them also had, were, had silk factories. So these small capitalists and sort of compradors for foreign companies um, yeah, used to be quite out well off and had one house um, per house per household basically but um, because a lot of them um, had lost um, the, their sources of income um, after the communist revolution um, uh, they had to sublet the rooms as um, these these uh, um, so they, they might have there might be five host households by the mid 1960s five to eight even in some houses that um, homes that are actually designed to accommodate just one family are now inhabited um, by five families at the time. Um, oftentimes, the consisting of workers, intellectuals, uh, also old um, uh, people who, who used to be capitalists. So it's actually a very, very diverse community. Um, with the Japanese housing compound, I wasn't able to find the original residents, even though in the Shanghai Municipal Archives, I was able to find the um, a lot of um, the, um, the material about the transition of enemy property uh, to um, um, to uh, after 1945, after the Japanese surrender, and they all moved out. So this housing compound became came under st- uh, the ownership of um, of the state, and then they were redistributed to employees of the Chinese employees of the cotton um, factory. So I was uh, in the first chapter. I was basically trying to trace how these spaces have been used uh, and owned by different families over time. And Shanghai, because it is housing is such a major issue for so many families, um, especially actually by the late 1970s and 1980s when the generation of uh, who used to be children in the 19, born in the uh, 1950s when they came of age and needed to have families of their own, but there is no, no housing for them. Um, so um, in the case of my paternal grandparents, they uh, had to sort of divide the two rooms that they had between two children um, uh, who were getting married in them. And my grandfather, actually, he, he was reduced to living under in a closet uh, under the staircase for uh, quite a few years. Uh, so the, the housing shortage and all the domestic conflicts that this generated is uh, what I tried to chronicle in this um, in this chapter, but also in terms of entitlement to house, uh, housing, especially in the socialist period. And this chapter really um, also highlights the, the importance of different media of memorializing um, 
the space of a home. And so the reader gets access to um, these sort of phenomena, this early history, and this actually continues throughout the book, not just through photographs that you give us and stories, but also through drawings, right? I think there are lots of drawings of these spaces by your parents. Is that right? Yes, yes. I was very lucky. My, my parents are, they were, of course, very supportive of this project from the beginning. And um, so that one of the nice things about um, I, when I, I try to explain the spaces in words, I realize it's quite inadequate. It's very difficult to to do this. Um, um, but my parents drew uh, sort of the plans of these homes and also what life used to be like based on the interviews that I conducted. So um, you can see this in the in the actual book. Um, itself. Um, Now there's, we could easily talk for the rest of the time just about this chapter, mm -hmm. but there are three more. And then so much. I I just want to mark for listeners um, just some of the really important things going on here and then sort of ask you Mm -hmm. to talk about some of the others. Now these families um, that you mentioned are not just multi-generational, but they're also polygamous, right? And certain, or I think you kind of use that description (laughs) and that's to say you're not just living with your father and your mother and your cousins and, you know, some other children, you're also potentially living with your father's concubine, right? And um, their children. And one of the, I mean, there's um, some really wonderful stories that are recounted in this chapter, including Grandma Apricot, who, you know, I just loved after the photograph on page 51 and her discussion of that, where she kind of takes us into um, this photo from a spring outing to Hangzhou in 1949, where she's talking about this whole story. You know, that was my father's concubine, and she's holding this baby, and here's what happens afterwards. And it becomes a story about this kind of evil stepmother, and it's just fabulous. Um, it's really just fabulous, right? And there's a lot of stuff like that here. So um, we're introduced to Ye Ye and Nai Nai. Um, and, you know, Ye Ye's writing criticisms of himself during campaigns and sort of seeding part of the house to the Housing Management Bureau and their downstairs neighbors, including the Woos. And old Wu had surgery that frustrated his sex life and he beat his (laughs) wife. And there's all this stuff happening, right? So we're like in this space of just like amazing stories. There's also um, a description here of um, illegal structures. Um, So that brings us into Aunt Pearl's shanty. Um, And Aunt Pearl is another fast. Can you talk a little bit about Aunt Pearl, actually, before we move on? Because that's a a fabulous, a really, really fascinating story itself. She lives in this kind of illegal structure that's built onto the house. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I first became interested in housing, I I, um, was looking up all this uh, description of Shanghai architecture and how it's kind of a museum of world architecture and then all these different architectural styles. And then when I walk around Shanghai, I realize that the kind of architecture that really um, is pretty ugly, but um, uh, very much um, uh, dear to people who live in Shanghai, are something called illegal structures. So they're basically these um, tentacles or like uh, these uh, um, sheds and shanties that people build on top of existing housing to accommodate the excess population. And uh, one of the first shanties that were built in my grand 
um, grandfather's uh, the the uh, the old Japanese housing compound, which used to be quite beautiful with front yard and uh, a backyard with garden and everything. But um, but because my um, because my grandfather uh, Yeye had to give up uh, the downstairs uh, the entire downstairs living room to a um, to a worker family because he was labeled a rightist, so he felt like he couldn't have so much housing. Uh, and uh, he had a daughter, my my aunt. Um, um, uh, she was paralyzed basically from the waist down. So uh, when she got a little bit older, it became very difficult to carry her up and down the staircase. And so um, my uh, my grandparents started petitioning the housing bureau to build a little shanty for her in the backyard. Um, and uh, um, when they finally got permission, their downstairs neighbor would not allow this because uh, he said uh, uh, he, there was actually a, a fig tree in the yard. And so they first had to build the shanty around the fig tree and then um, um, and then when he moved away they took the opportunity to expand the, the territory so uh, so that she could uh, actually have a room of her own and even though it's quite um, um, haphazardly put together and uh, um, uh, the, the, the room is actually freezing and um, uh, over uh, over the winter and quite um, damp uh, it, it becomes home to her for many years so um, um, I uh, even though it, it is one of the most sort of eyesores of Shanghai's landscape, and you can see still many illegal structures, but um, I would almost like readers to think of these kinds of structures as home um, for many of their inhabitants uh, in times of uh, gross uh, housing shortage. That's right. And, and Aunt Pearl's story also um, is a, a little window that opens up um, large, or, or sort of wider and wider over the course of the book into um, not just a history of home and what it, what home can look like and feel like, but also a history of disability. Um, I mean, she's, yeah. there's these, and, and of gender, right? I mean, there's this mm-hmm. story of her like trying to get a job in this workshop in an alleyway, and a guy uh, sort of went, before hiring her, um, this guy wants to watch her go to the toilet to prove that she's reliant or to prove her independence, right? That she can. Actually, yes. They're just these yeah. amazing moments of that. Uh, they're unbelievable almost, um, but that, you know, really are just um, touching and striking. And I think really, really important, um, even beyond thinking about just in, uh, the story in terms of home. Yeah, my, my grandmother used to always say, if only she had lived to this day, you know, when um, disabled people ha- are much better treated in China today than back in, in the 1970s or 1960s, when she was not allowed to go to school or really get a job. And so, That's yeah. Right. So if that chapter looks at the home as foothold, chapter two considers home as a haven and a refuge. And this is a haven and a refuge defined by boundaries of privacy. You know, there's a lot of amazing things happening here, but one of the really interesting um, sections of this chapter is one of the first chapter, one of the first sections that looks at um, domestic artifacts as historical witnesses. And you introduce us to Weigong and Weipo's grain bed, Yeye's writing desk, Nai Nai's sewing machine. We have photographs on the eight immortal table and we have a radio. To give us the kind of flavor of of, um, what's happening here, can you kind of choose maybe one of them that's perhaps um, particularly evocative to you at this particular moment um, for whatever that is um, and just kind of take us into uh, one of these objects? 
maybe since we are doing a podcast, maybe I talk about radio. Radio. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess I, I, I'm very interested in the soundscape of the alleyway as well. And, uh, I wanted to know about the history of, uh, radio in this, in this place. And I, so, um, my grandfather said he, he, when he first came to Shanghai, he was very envious of the radio that his boss, um, had because uh, he was always very curious about hearing news or, and he could still recite some of the songs that were played on the radio at the time. Uh, and so like at, when he became a, a state um, uh, factory worker with uh, quite a bit of disposable income, one of the first appliances he bought was a radio and he bought it from Grandma Apricot's uh, grandmother um, who, um, uh, uh, oh, I mean, Grandma Apricot's um, mother who who used to like use the radio as a way of um, um, uh, keeping her company in the days when she was pretty much trapped at home. She wasn't really allowed to go outside as the uh, wife of this um, uh, manager. Uh, and uh, uh, and then because of the this bourgeois family of uh, Grandma Apricot could uh, no longer afford uh, to keep up their uh, past standard of living, they started to pawn off everything, including this radio. So my grandfather actually bought this radio. And I wanted to, I was sort of also looking up what kind of programs, there were, like what, what was in on the radio. Uh, and it was really interesting to find out, for example, that uh, in Shanghai, in the Republican period, there were um, 60 private radio stations. And then after um, uh, the uh, communist takeover, they they all um, became abolished. And eventually, there were really just uh, central people's radio broadcasting station and the Shanghai radio station. And uh, uh, um, every morning at a certain hour, they would broadcast um, um, uh, the music for doing gymnastics. And this is something that everybody who lived in China would experience in schools or work units. Everybody would be doing these broadcast gymnastics. Uh, so that um, so radio also came to regulate people's bodies. And uh, um, and then my grandfather actually, but one of my own memories of radio is actually from um, the late 1980s when uh, particularly in 1989 during the Tiananmen protests, uh, I was in Shanghai, I really had no idea what was going on because I was a nine-year-old. Um, but my grandfather would listen to a transistor radio under his pillow every night, and he would listen to a program that was would turn out to be Voices of America, and then which reported um, incidents that were completely different from uh, what I heard in the morning from the Central People's Broadcasting Station, which he would play at full volume. Um, so it also made me aware of a sort of like a hidden voices and a kind of an undercurrent of voices that. Uh, was happening in the alleyway that is oftentimes whispered. So there are these two uh, kinds of radio. And when I actually imitated the sounds of the radio to my grandparents, they were quite shocked and said, don't don't do this at school. Um, but I think the, in, in some ways, this, um, the, the realization of these different stations and different voices uh, made me see that uh, what we hear in the mainstream uh, historiography may not be what people are necessarily hearing or um, uh, paying attention to in their, in their domestic lives. Absolutely. And this is, um, incidentally, I'm teaching a class right now in which we're reading the diary of Anne Frank. And there's this, I don't know if you've had a chance to, but there's this, um, the, all these resonances, you know, sort of attentiveness to 
um, living together in this particular space, the importance of the radio and kind of um, the radio becoming part of household life. There's just, I mentioned that because for listeners who are interested in, I think, teaching courses and seminars who are looking for um, kind of cross, uh, cross-disciplinary trans-local books that might be put together um, for larger histories of home or of um, kind of materiality of home, but for lots and lots of different ways. I could imagine your book being taught alongside some of these other books in ways that could create really, really interesting conversations, like The Diary of Anne Frank, for example. Well, um, thank you. I never made that association, but that would be amazing. It yeah. would be an amazing yeah. course to teach. Yeah. I would love to take that as a student, too. Um, but so materiality continues yeah. to be really, really important throughout this chapter. Um, we won't have a chance to talk about all the ways that this is true, but I'll just mention for listeners, there's this really, um, I think, moving and very kind of striking discussion here of home searches. And you talked a little bit about that, I think, a little bit earlier, um, this sort of struggle sessions and um, what's happening to the alleyway in the context of the Cultural Revolution. And there are um, some descriptions here, not just of the experience of these home searches, right, of sort of having one's personal space uh, violated um, in mm-hmm. a way by these searches, but also some really kind of surprising and interesting accounts of the exhibition of some of the items that were um, confiscated, right? And of, yeah. um, kind of clandestine reading um, yeah. that went along with this. There's also um, sort of moving from here, and I know I'm speeding through this ridiculously, so listeners, read all of this closely. There's so much that I'm not talking about. There's also um, a discussion of kind of interior decoration, right? You talk about the ways that aunts and uncles are using interior decoration to reinvent what you call petty bourgeois privacy in Shanghai homes. And we meet an engineer of the human soul here, <laughs> Aunt Treasure. Yeah. <laughs> now, Aunt Treasure. Do you want to talk a little bit about Aunt Treasure? I mean, Aunt Treasure is kind of hilarious in this book. Well, she was a quite a revolutionary. She, uh, after she graduated from college uh, in 1968, she volunteered because my father at the time was a volunteer to go to the Northeast and you know support the uh, Send Down movement. And my aunt said that she was going to become a teacher in the most remote borders of the country. So she decided to go to Xinjiang um, and become. And she calls herself um, the engineer of the whole human soul. And um, but. Um, uh, when she came back to Shanghai to visit my grandparents in the 1980s, and my uncle had just gotten married and redecorated the, um, his marriage chamber with um, all these new appliances like um, a wash machine and a refrigerator, and uh, all this, um, and also like um, uh, my my aunt uh, had a. Uh, she brought a dowry of these beautiful blankets and also uh, her dresses. And then when Aunt Treasure saw that um, uh, that my uncle's wife had, uh, his new wife had uh, uh, many pairs of shoes, she was outraged. <laughs> and she said that even the professors at her university did not have uh, so many pairs of shoes. And, you know, what does she think? Who, who does she think she is? And uh, uh, so there was quite a bit of domestic drama over the um, the materialistic 
consumption of the, you know, what she, she called petty urban night, um, in a very uh, derogatory way, she called my aunt. And then, um, but some years later, by the time I interviewed her, um, she herself um, w- um, uh, is very proud to announce that she has very a lot of pairs of shoes as well. So her <laughs> values have completely turned around, and uh, and her husband is now, uh, you know, running a uh, also a company. So and she says, well, capitalists work actually much harder than workers. So, um, <laughs> so I, I thought that she, she's quite a character who can actually bring out the the, uh, the changes in people's uh, the way people look at uh, um, material consumption over time. And uh, um, and I, I also feel like in the Cultural Revolution, when there was n- no privacy allowed ostensibly, but it's for example with the um, uh, when. Um, bourgeois objects have been put on exhibition to show the shamelessness of, um, I don't know, capitalist mistresses or something. Uh, a lot of the people who are viewing the exhibitions actually are amazed at the um, the quality of life uh, before the communist revolution. So the reception of these um, exhibitions may be quite um, uh, contradictory to the intentions um, of the, those who, who staged them to begin with. And actually some Several of the worker households, um, they were uh, buying uh, these these uh, things like nylon stockings and even um, uh, uh, short sleeved um, uh, woolen sweaters from the pawn shops, uh, secondhand shops, uh, because they're they're such beautiful objects, even though they're not really going to be wearing them. At home, but something like the short-sleeved uh, woolen sweater um, is bourgeois because there's it's not about protecting your body from the cold, but rather for for fashion purposes, right? So, um, so those are also some of the I, I'm very keen on sort of documenting the the fashion sense even of the um, um, of the Shanghai residents over time and how this changed and developed over time. Mm-hmm. So after um, we move or after we explore the rest of this chapter, which includes, and I just have to give a shout out to um, Growing Pains, the TV show Growing Pains. Oh, yes. It's just really great discussion of the sort of the ways that um, some of these families are looking to foreigners on TV for cues to home life. And Growing Pains is one of the shows they look to. And I'll just say they weren't the only ones who are trying to learn how a normal family, uh, quote unquote, (laughs) U.S. works from Growing Pains. I remember that myself. Um, But then we move into a chapter on... On gossip. So chapter three focuses on neighborhood gossip and family lore. And as you put it here, home is a site of memory and storytelling, and it's haunted by ghosts. Now, in part of this chapter, you approach the alleyway space as what you call a milieu for gossip. And the section of this chapter provides a tour of your own childhood alleyway home. And it shows, um, among other things, how the alleyway can become a kind of theater for everyday life. And that's another theme that um, for listeners who are interested in, in reading the book and tracing themes throughout, the theme of theater is actually um, one that recurs. Now, you take us into um, some moments in this tour, including um, introducing us to the eyes of grandma front bedroom. These names are great, right? <laughs> the, the communal kitchen and the faucet room, a dark staircase with four light bulbs. Yeah. Um, now, just to kind of maybe open up this part of the book a little bit for listeners, for you, um, can you kind of think of one of those moments that might have been, or and might for whatever reason right now be particularly evocative for you? Um, and maybe just talk about that a little bit to um, to bring us into this part of the book. Um, 
I guess um, I was interested in how the alleyway space itself might generate narratives and generate storytelling because I felt that many of the stories I was hearing from my interviewees have very much to do with the architecture itself. And I felt that, um, um, and I was wondering why there would be so many stories, even when I was trying to do like uh, fiction writing classes, um, my memories always go back to the alleyway um, as opposed to my, my later life in the United States, uh, and and I uh, and one thing I realized uh, for for one thing, like when you're entering into the alleyway, like when, whenever a peddler comes, um, um, or you know if um, if someone c- buys something from a peddler, then it already is a communal event, and uh, you find out a lot about people's um, ec- um, um, their their domestic economy through um, the, what what they buy and how they bargain, um, and then. Uh, Back also in the 19, uh, until like the uh, late 1990s, many families didn't have telephones. So there was a communal telephone at the entrance of the alleyway. So every time someone got a phone call, um, the, whole, the entire alleyway would find out who got a phone call because the, the public telephone person would shout um, and also uh, mail as well. So the traffic that goes through the big alley and the alleyway branches um is already generating a spectacle of some kind and people are always poking their heads out. And then also um, because of the tight space, um, uh, people are sharing a kitchen. So five families might be sharing a communal kitchen um, and you would find out exactly what each family is eating at a certain time and from the, the smell of what they're cooking, you have a sense of their culinary nostalgia. What um, and uh, you have a sense also of their either their native place origins, also what kinds of food they need, or you know from the smell of um, fresh milk or f- from cooking milk or of medicine. You also know somebody is sick in the family, so it's a very central environment where uh, when people live in close proximity to each other, they can hear, they can smell, they can see. Um, each other's lives, um, it really generates a lot of gossip in the process. Um, and so these are some of the things I had in, in the tour, really, I take the readers step by step through from the uh, more public spaces into the most intimate spaces. So um, the last place I really stop at is the, a wall, a very thin partition between what is called the front bedroom and the back bedroom. This used to be actually one room, but a partition was added to separate two households. But of course, you can hear everything um, through this partition. So even for children who are living there, they find out uh, very early on about the in- intimate lives of their neighbors and their uh, also. So, so it's... Um, um, it, it, it can be actually quite destructive to, um, people's, um, well, I think mental well-being as well to, to live in such close proximity with each other. Um, so it, it almost like they, they hated each other intimately. There are many <laughs> neighbors. Um, so, um, I try to discuss that in the, um, in, in this chapter called Gossip. Um, now, we also find out about the intimate lives of um, some of the figures in the book. And in particular, there's a really um, beautiful set of discussions of women on the, mar- on the margins. Yeah. So these women had come to the alleyway through marriage or through concubinage. They lost their husbands, um, as you describe here, to the revolution. And they took on kinds of work like um, night soil collection, kind of underpaid work, despised work. And it, these stories include the story of uh, Mother Mao or Moth, 
and her husband. And, and you sort of, as you're reading through, I mean, you really kind of feel like you want to meet these people in person, right? She's got this husband who visits brothel and he eventually gets syphilis. And you're sort of, you know, reading through this story and thinking like, how, how, what an amazing human who had the strength to sort of get through yeah. this. And there's also, um, mother young when, you know, she has an affair with Mr. Shia and all this stuff goes down and then she eventually remarries, but she's this beautiful woman. And it's just, the, um, you know, we won't have time to talk about all of this, but yeah. I just wanted to kind of mark this for listeners. There are some amazing stories in this part of the book. One of those amazing stories is the story of Aunt Duckweed. We can't, I cannot let you off of the Skype conversation okay. without talking at least a little bit about Aunt Duckweed. Now, we get a glimpse here of Aunt Duckweed's family drama in a single room home from the 1950s through the 1980s. And in addition to kind of telling us stories about her life, you also um, give us stills from your experience filming the ruins of that home, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about this? For you, what are the most important aspects of Mother Duck, or rather um, Aunt Duckweed's story um, for the, the book, or the work that this part of the book is doing? Um, so Aunt Duckweed's um, story, I, I, I always actually find it very difficult to talk about. I, her story is, um, of, of the people who read the book, they always tell me that this is one of the most moving stories yeah. in the book. Yeah. Um, and, and, and perhaps also because it, it is actually not really related to the political history in any way. Um, the sufferings of her family do not have to do with uh, political persecution or anything like that. But um, uh, she actually talks about the, the life that is lived in um, between um, um, in, in a one, like a 14 square meter room where her uh, mother and father and three children uh, and where she herself spent the first 26 years of her life. Um, and uh, her father was a silk worker um, who was actually a fan of um, movies and was always uh, very assiduously like buying film tickets for everyone and also a very generous human being. Uh, they lived quite well and the mother uh, wanted to be just uh, she she was also a, a uh, worker, but she preferred to be a housewife. So she actually took prolonged sick leaves um, for many decades and um, was. Um, um, but then she became quite obsessed with money and uh, uh, was always. Um, uh, sort of arguing with Andokwit's father over over um, um, sort of uh, family finances, and uh, to the extent that when he was dying um, in the late 1980s, um, and she was obsessed about this imaginary. Um, $10,000, 10,000 yuan that he had put away and she was searching all over the house for it. Um, so it is actually a very painful uh, relationship that the parents had with each other and uh, and all of this is is chronicled in the um, in, in her narrative, in her story um, to me. Um, and it, it made me um, I think this is, her story is actually one of the reasons why uh, oftentimes when people write about these, um, these alleyway homes that are disappearing, 
um, it's uh, the, the the narratives and also the photographs are uh, very much couched in nostalgia. Um, but I I also feel that she really um, her story really brought out the pain of what it means to live in such cramped quarters and to have um, to also to be stuck in a really unhappy marriage between her parents and and her story is also about how she got out of the alleyway and then secured a space for herself as a single woman. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I can't quite do just, I feel like this is a, uh, I, t- I try to talk about on Doc Reed's story many times, but I feel that it almost needs to be read. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think we can, all we can do now is yeah. just give a, a very brief oral snapshot mm-hmm. of a much, much richer and um, really, really worth reading part of the book. And so this is, um, so listeners, I hope will go to that part of, well, we'll read the whole book, right? But we'll go particularly <laughs> to that part of the book um, and uh, learn about and, and meet Aunt Duckweed. And this is, Aunt Duckweed's story is also another um, element of this ongoing history that's kind of under the surface of the book of mm-hmm. moments of disability, the history of disability, because Aunt Duckweed kind of talks yeah. about, right, sort of how her mother um, may have had kind of mental illness. And so it's this, yeah, so I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Yeah, her her mother and brother, and then uh, actually in one of the application essays to the housing bureau that her father wrote, one was uh, that there are two mentally ill uh, people in this, um, you know, this one room that we're living in. So he was applying for more housing, and of course he he never heard back. That's right. Um, so as we come to the end of the book, and there's so there's no way we're going to have time to, to do justice yeah. to the end of the book, but let's at least touch on it. This is um, there's a fourth chapter that looks at the decay, destruction, and afterlife of the two yeah. houses and their neighborhoods, and this is a chapter called Demolition. Yes. So beginning in the 1990s, Shanghai cityscape, as you um, take us into in this part of the book, underwent some major major changes, including mm-hmm. a sort of a push toward urban renewal that ruined or erased um, older neighborhoods and some of the neighborhoods that we've been learning about and sort of um, in in different ways and momentary ways inhabiting along with you um, and your um, the figures of the book over the course of the book. Now, the chapter focuses on your old childhood neighborhood, and among other things, it takes us into your visit um, to the old neighborhood in July of 2011. So as a way to just kind of get a glimpse of some of this part of the book, can you maybe um, talk about that a little bit for you? What were um, maybe one or two of the most important aspects of that visit um, for for listeners who are interested in understanding um, how to contextualize this part of the book? I think the the chapter demolition is probably the chapter that interests um, people who are um, interests most people who are um, um, concerned about sort of Shanghai's urban um, uh, sort of the, the physical changes of the um, urban landscape um, and uh, because uh, the, the this form of sort of lane housing or alleyway housing used to uh, accommodate this uh, maybe um, uh, sort of seventy percent of the city's population, and now they're quite uh, rapidly vanishing. 
And uh, what happens with uh, demolition of a, a given neighborhood um, is that the residents are often moved to the outskirts of the city, and then in the place of the old housing com- uh, in the place of the old alleyway, uh, new skyscrapers would be built. And this was originally done by having developers come in and they hire these uh, uh, demolition and relocation um, uh, teams who try to move the residents out by giving them. Them, um, the minimal amount of compensation possible or sort of swapping, uh, giving them houses, um, housing that's uh, more in the suburbs and uh, moving them into the... Um, so I, I went to pay a visit to the old, um, kind of the ruins of that that neighborhood um, um, in 2011. And my own childhood alleyway had been torn down already for a couple of years, but the neighborhood um, um, next door was still undergoing this process. Um, the way these uh, demolition teams work is that they try to convince the households to move one by one and every time a household agrees to move uh, they actually tear down that one house instead of like getting everybody's permission uh, so um, it, it means that some of the people who have not agreed to move are living amidst the ruins of other homes that are basically living in a state of rubble and um, having electricity sometimes cut off and um, so um, and, and the people who refuse to move at the end are called nail houses um, um, I, because they, uh, they, they want better compensation oftentimes. So uh, when I went back, I saw uh, one nail house that was four stories tall and um, uh, mostly, actually, it's uh, illegal, part of the illegal construction because they had built uh, 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 the th- uh, three of these stories uh, when they learned that this neighborhood was going to be demolished. So, But they wanted compensation that measured up to how much they had. And then on top of their house, they, they actually put many flags, like Chinese national flags and also a loudspeaker that um, sometimes played on the international and also a lot of slogans that um, were uh, critical of the government. So, And then they described to us uh, the uh, several times when the demolition and relocation um, uh, squad kind of tried to relocate them and try to uh, empty the house so that they can tear down the house and then make them move to the suburbs. Uh, they actually prepared all these weapons or, you know, like kind of their own homemade um, um, in to defend this fortress of a, of a, of a, of a nail house uh, uh, from, from the invasion of um, these, uh, um, uh, the, um, of the demolition team in order to get better compensation. They were basically like almost risking their lives in in order to, um, and it, it was, it's actually a quite an ugly scene. Uh, I, I, I was quite shocked at the way that, um, um, they, uh, um, this, this whole process, because I, I feel like nail houses have also sometimes been portrayed in the media as very heroic, uh, because, uh, as if they are, um, defending, like kind of uh, the movie Avatar, uh, mm-hmm. becomes read in a Chinese sense as sort of the, de- the, the conflict between nail homes and developers, um, 
who are coming in to, to tear down these old communities. But I realized that the nail home uh, that I saw um, in this area and also from other interviews that oftentimes it is not about the preservation of the old um, um, uh, community, but rather about maximizing their um, the, the compensation that they can get. Um, so it is a very uh, corrupt and also um, um, a violent process that everyone talks about. Um, uh, so these homes have turned into a last kind of economic capital, and they're trying to get the most out of them um, in order to sort of accommodate the many uh, desires that they have. And I, I mentioned in the end that many of these nail homes um, actually are related to the idea of the selfless um, uh, boat spirit that was promoted together with the Leifeng study from Leifeng campaign, because for most of the socialist period, uh, private desires are suppressed, and um, it is the um, uh, uh, sort everyone had to think of the public and uh, the individual to the revolution is like a boat in a machine. Um, and so the boat spirit was actually very much promoted in um, in the propaganda. But those who had um, uh, been um, displaced, uh, for example, to the countryside because of the Sandan Youth Movement, and they, they come back and they feel like they need to be nail houses now. They have to sort of have a stake in their own um, private interests and uh, in order to defend that. Uh, so I make a connection between the, um, the, the boat spirit and the nail homes that uh, you, uh, you see quite a bit in Shanghai today. Mm-hmm. Well, Jia, thank you so much for spending the time to give us a glimpse of this really wonderful, very, very moving and very thoughtful book. Um, there's also a coda that describes your giving Yeya and Nainai's things to a recycling man um, that I'll just point out for listeners. It's also very moving, and I think it's a really touching way to close the book. Now, there's a lot we haven't had a chance to talk about, right? And then, of course, um, a conversation like this can't be comprehensive, but is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, I think we covered quite a bit. I, yeah, thank you for, the, <laughs> no, for this opportunity. No, so yeah. now that the book is out and congratulations, um, is there any, or what, what are you working on now? Is there anything right now that's particularly inspiring you and what can we look forward to reading next? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm trying to turn now my dissertation into a book and I've, I'm almost, I, I have uh, a draft of every chapter, but uh, I'm still working on it. So this project is, um, the title is uh, Utopian, the tentative title is Utopian Ruins, um, a memory museum of the Mao era. Mm-hmm. And it takes um, the, uh, an idea from uh, the writer and, and public intellectual, Ba Jing, who called for a cultural revolution museum in 1986 and this wish for a cultural revolution museum actually has been repeated over and over by many intellectuals over the decades but um, it has not been realized but taking that as an idea I wondered what would it be like to actually build a memory museum um, devoted to the Mao era what should one exhibit Um, and uh, so the the project um, has uh, right now like it has sort of three parts the first part is called uh, dossiers, um, d- sort of devoted to the dangan of individuals uh, who um, uh, that have been rediscovered, including a woman who uh, had been imprisoned in Shanghai and was writing in her own blood. And her story has been sort of revealed through a documentary film 
uh, made in recent years, uh, but her, she kind of provided a testimony to her own uh, persecution. And I explore how her story became um, kind of an icon or it became a, a mnemonic device to refer to many political campaigns uh, throughout the Mao era. Um, so, um, and then the second part is called Utopian Visions, and it deals with uh, uh, visual culture and visual legacies from the Mao era. So one chapter actually focuses on uh, photography from the Great Leap Forward um, and the absence of photography of the Great Leap Famine. Uh, and another chapter focuses on a documentary film that Antonioni had made in China in 1972 and was denounced um, and, um, and was the object of a, uh, a, a campaign, uh, a political campaign to denounce the film. Um, and the final part actually is about, is a survey of the memory landscape of um, um, of the uh, in China today of the Mao era, including um, the ruins of um, old socialist factories, as well as um, existing museums and memorials that are devoted to the the history or the culture of the the Mao era. So um, I'm still at work on this, and I hope that it will be done in the next um, uh, year or so. Well, that sounds amazing, too. So best of luck with that project. I look forward to talking with you about that when it comes to Um And thank you so much, Yeah, This has really been a pleasure. It's an amazing book, and I'm really grateful to you for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.